Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 49 on a typical Scottish summer's day. The rain is pouring down and you may be able to even hear it battering my office window here in East Lothian. Settle down then for a heartwarming experience. Whatever your views on President Trump, it's fair to say that the US hasn't been generating great media headlines, particularly in Europe. It's therefore refreshing to hear from Ian M. Houston, a dual US-UK citizen with a strong Scottish heritage. Ian knows the political world of Washington, D.C. inside out. Well-connected, he has wandered the corridors of power, advised, lobbied and negotiated. Yet his mission is very much one of doing good and, in particular, creating opportunities for the disadvantaged. In this extended episode, Ian talks us through his journey from academia to enterprise, the challenges for diplomats under current US foreign policy, and why he's a big fan of Scotland's women's football team. A published poet, he also reads from his new collection. The interview with Ian starts in about 45 seconds, but first, a quick word about our partners, A1 SEO. For many businesses doing well online, lockdown has contributed to healthy growth. The key to that growth has been ranking high in online searches. A1 SEO are search engine optimization specialists based in Glasgow who help businesses significantly increase their incoming web traffic. And Graham Greve, the founder of A1 SEO, is now offering listeners to this podcast a free, personalised 15-minute mini-audit of your website. Simply drop him an email at graham at a1seo.digital with your website's URL and a couple of keywords that you want your business to be associated with. Ian M. Houston, hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's del- it's a delight to be with you, Fraser. Great to speak to you. And um, over in Washington, D.C., is that correct? That is right, yes. So how is life for you at the moment, Ian? You know, what's the situation with, with COVID-19, etc.? Well, of course, when people think of Washington, they will look at it through the lens of the political atmosphere. And so... What I always like to remind people is this is a community. It's a community of people with neighborhoods and livelihoods. It's not only about politics, uh, media naturally, and appropriately so, will listen to the political leaders and what they may have to say, whether it's constructive or not. But we are people who are living our lives. And yes, there are real challenges, particularly for those who are often overlooked in the economy as is the case in in Scotland, people who are running small businesses, entrepreneurs who have challenges, schools that have closed down, students and and families just trying to figure out how to incorporate these changes into their lives. Uh, For me personally, I have appreciated the moments uh, that I've had to reconnect on some subjects uh, I appreciate and enjoy. Um, But uh, overall, I'm sympathetic and uh, empathetic for people and what they're going through right now. Now, Ian, you're a, you're a dual British-American citizen, based in the States, of course, with a, a strong Scottish and English heritage. You're a prolific poster on LinkedIn. I've seen some really interesting stuff on there, and you show a, a great passion and knowledge for Scottish culture and society. And you're now also an ambassador for the Scottish Business Network. So I'd like to start by hearing about what life was like for you when you were growing up and how your sense of identity was shaped. Well, that's a very good question. I would say my feeling on identities, it's so directly linked and interconnected with a sense of belonging. And so I feel my identity was very much shaped by the people who embraced me from an early age. Uh, And these will be, first and foremost, my parents. My father is from Glasgow in in the Scottsdale area, graduated from the University of Strathclyde. Um, Moments from Leamington Spa and Warwickshire um, in England, of course. Uh, They arrived in the San Francisco Bay Area where I grew up about 30 years old, roughly about 30 years old. And so for me, in terms of my identity, the place itself I think Fraser very much shaped me. The San Francisco Bay Area 
and a town called Sunnyvale, which, true to its name, it was indeed quite sunny, uh, quite a bit. I love the Bay Area. I have a real passion for its values, what it stands for, its inclusiveness, uh, the the orchards that were there when I was younger, the the creativity, entrepreneurship. In many ways, it reminds me of Scotland. Uh, there are real connections, I think, with the uh, the entrepreneurship and the, and the feel of the place. Different weather, of course, but that that's not that's a sort of a peripheral issue. It's more the consciousness of the people, the inclusiveness, uh, the progressiveness, and the entrepreneurship. I see a lot of similarities, but in the end, Fraser, I feel I return to the people who shaped my life and continue to impact my life, and, and those were members of family and close friends uh, who came from England and Scotland. Uh, England and Scotland, particularly Scotland, were such a, a deep part of the consciousness and spirit of our home. Um, and it, it really shaped who I am. I tell you a very quick story about my father. Uh, my father, again, coming about 30 years old to the Bay Area, did not really know anything about American baseball. And as a, a young boy, I wanted to play baseball. And so I signed up for a, a baseball team and my father came to the first practice and offered to be an assistant coach. And he didn't know anything about uh, American baseball, but he wanted to support me and wanted to support this growing family and really integrate into Bay Area. So what he did, not knowing any baseball, the, the, the coach said, that's fine. You can be an assistant coach. He started to teach us cricket, which is what he knew. <laughs> And at the time, I was terribly embarrassed <laughs> just <laughs> watching my father teach us a, a, the game of cricket. And my friends at the time were, were wondering, who is this? Who is this person and what is he doing? And uh, in retrospect, after that embarrassment, now in later years, I so appreciate what he did with that very special mm -hmm. moment how he was so engaged in my life that he would offer to be a coach and not know anything about the game, but was willing to learn and support me. And then even try to teach these young boys a foreign game. So yeah, the people in my life, my mother and father, my siblings, uh, grandparents, just so uh, shaped the person that I am today. And so um, what did the young Ian M. Houston dream of doing for a career at this stage? Presumably not cricket. <laughs> yes. Although I, I, I loved cricket, but no, I did not dream of that. But it, it, I still feel that I haven't completely laid to rest my dreams. <laughs> They're still stirring and, and churning around inside of me. And uh, But as a young boy, I think that there was a connection to sport, uh, as many young people do, young girls or, or boys have a, an affinity to sport or dance or acting, something along those lines. I, I was no different. I, I wanted to uh, play professional golf. I became a, a serious golfer. Uh, that, Fraser, was very influenced by my father as well, but I wanted to be a, a golfer or a baseball player or a football player, a soccer player. Uh, and so that was of interest to me. I also enjoyed radio. I used to listen to radio quite a bit and uh, enjoyed issues and debate and just creating and art and writing at, at a young age. Um, it gave me confidence to do that, both sport and writing and creating, uh, because I feel the people around me very much validated those interests and supported mm -hmm. me. And uh, I think all of us have that ability to do that, um, to help validate young people, not to dismiss their dreams, but to validate them and encourage them. They may not end up achieving what their dreams are, but it's an important opportunity for us to just put our hand on their shoulder and say, 
fine job. That's a great dream. You go for it. And so I had many people around me who encouraged uh, my ambitions and my interests as a young boy. Well, maybe there's still some to look out for you on the on the seniors golf tournament in a few years' time. You never know. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, golf's golf's loss was uh, sort of the gain of, of the international relations world because you, you've got a very strong academic background in politics and international relations. And after studying in the US, you earned a master's at the University of Kent in, in England. You then worked at the, at the House of Representatives as an aide and advisor to the Republican George Radanovich. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how did the academic experience compare to the reality of working there? And what did you learn from those early years? It's a very, very good question. I think when I started working in the United States Congress, I came with a style of writing and communicating that I remember the chief of staff in the office, which was the senior position, uh, the person I was reporting to directly. Uh, he said to me as I wrote and developed speeches and letters, uh, he said the word that he used was flowery. He said, your, your writing too, is too flowery, he, he said to me. And um, that was an important lesson to me because it, I think it was accurate. I, I think that uh, there was a transition I needed to make from the writing that I had been so accustomed to doing at university, both undergraduate and graduate that was a bit flowery and maybe a bit academic um, and too analytical. I needed to find a more practical voice of communicating with people. And so that was a real transition for me to learn that art and that skill, because in that world, Fraser, of course, you're going to have to find the voice of other people that you're writing for. Mm. It's not necessarily your own. You have to uh, advocate in the voice of the person that you're working for or representing. And so that was a, a real transition for me. I think that the study of international relations, which for me at Kent was very theoretical, uh, international relations theory, it's a great program at Kent. And there were some great professors there that I still am in contact with. Uh, but the actual implementation of foreign affairs and diplomacy was very different. It was it, it was a more practical based uh, execution of how to build relationships, how to track it, how to write, how to create memos, how to analyze information and uh, build networks, etc. So it's a very good question. I think I hope I haven't gone so far into the world of practitioner or the practical world that I've forgotten the importance of the academic study of international relations, because that's vitally important. In terms of the kind of next stage of your career, you've, I mean, you've done a lot of things. So you, there was a series of posts at uh, Thinker International, yes. America's Development Foundation, TechnoServe, Interaction. Mm-hmm. And so over this period, you could, it seems to me you were demonstrating a talent for uh, developing policy, strategic advocacy, and, and managing often complex relationships. So can you talk us through these roles, in and what, what were the key challenges and the lessons that you drew from them? Yes, another good question. Opportunity to represent the global poor and give voice to humanitarian development issues and those who don't have a voice, particularly in Washington, was a real honor. And I continue to try to advocate for the poor, for refugees, and what I write, uh, women's issues, uh, microenterprise issues, uh, issues that really bank on the opportunities and the potential of those who are impoverished. Who, What I learned, Fraser, very quickly is that these are individuals who have great hardships and obstacles. They don't lack talent or desire. They simply lack opportunities or avenues, which many of us enjoy. Or we talked about my own personal story. I, I, I did not make a choice where I was grown or where I grew up or the circumstances in, in which I grew up. That, that wasn't my choice. That was what I was born into. And so many children around the world are simply uh, billions of children around the world are born into circumstances where they have significant obstacles. For me to represent 
the the poor was a, a great honor to be an advocate uh, for them, and I hope to make a difference for them. Some of the challenges I think that I faced in the nonprofit world. If we again go back to your earlier question about transition from academic to the uh, world of practitioner uh, or the business of international relations or development, it's really important for students who may be studying humanitarian development policy, if they aspire to get involved with that professionally or as a career, what I learned is so important to understand how a nonprofit works, how it how it functions. And so if they have space or an opportunity while they're studying the theory of international development and humanitarian policy and practice, to take time to study fundraising or member engagement or overall management practices, human resources, things that I learned very quickly are central to the functioning of these various organizations that you mentioned. Because the reality, particularly as it relates to the flow of resources to sustain the mission, is critically important. If an organization like Finca or ADF or Technoserve doesn't have resources coming in, partnerships with donor agencies or individual donors, then it cannot further the mission. So these organizations, what I learned, are businesses. There is a business of development and humanitarian activity. It's not only doing good, which is certainly a, a great motivator, and many of these organizations, including the ones you mentioned, are doing wonderful things, but they're doing that because they're well-managed. And um, interaction itself is a coalition of organizations, American Relief and Humanitarian Groups, um, that come from all over the country and are doing so many different things. Now, Ian, you also clearly harboured an entrepreneurial side um, to your character because in 2003 you founded the consulting firm Clyde Built International. So how did this come about and how did you find the experience of building your own business? Clyde Built, of course, has a direct connection to Scotland. You will know that, of course, ships that are built on the Clyde were literally stamped with a seal of approval uh, or pride that uh, deem them as Clyde built. Mm -hmm. And so the term itself is important because Clyde built was designed to launch organizations in new directions, just borrowing on the metaphor uh, of Clyde built. Uh, Clyde built initially was designed to help smaller organizations that didn't have the resources, to my point earlier about challenges of resources alongside a, a commendable mission. Challenges that organizations face in having representation in a place like Washington or London or New York to help them to elevate the profile of their organization and to bring together under an umbrella of Clyde Bill International representation for these smaller organizations. So uh, that's what I was doing. And I was engaging with entities as small as uh, uh, florists in Ethiopia who were growing flowers and trying to sell them into new markets into Europe and uh, the United States and uh, coffee growers and, uh, again, organizations that were great and really making a difference but did not have representation. Uh, the challenge I faced and continue to face with it, Fraser, I think it's built on a, a, um, a mission that is valid, but it's always challenged to maintain the resources to sustain the model. Uh, what I've done in the latest iteration of Clyde Build is more engagement with universities and partnerships between U.S. and U.K. universities, supporting U.S. universities. Uh, presidents of those universities with foreign affairs programming, um, and uh, also continue to be mindful of organizations that do humanitarian and development issues. And as, as part of this, you launched something called Clyde Built Conversations, which 
Yes. Or sitting down with sort of former US secretaries of state, governors, senators, ambassadors, all kinds of people to speak about their lives and their and the concept of leadership. So what did you, you draw from these experiences? Yes, those experiences and those interviews have been designed to help those individuals talk about their personal experiences and their own journeys, but also to focus on the question of leadership. I had felt that leadership had been broken. Leadership even today is not where it needs to be at that level. It's not the type of leadership that I personally adhered to or wished to practice or observed in others that I admired. And so I wanted to have conversations with people I had interacted with and had some contact with. And I felt secretaries of state, particularly secretaries of state like James Baker, uh, George Schultz, who, by the way, is still alive. He turns 100 years old uh, coming up in December. So George Schultz, George Schultz was a real luminary at the State Department in terms of leadership and how to be a leader. And that's not a a partisan statement at all. Within the Foreign Service ranks, there's a great deal of respect for George Schultz. Um, and uh, James Baker, who, of course, you'll know as Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury and Chief of Staff for Ronald Reagan. Um, but I also tried to make them bipartisan with senators and governors, uh, ambassadors and charitable leaders. I think I learned from it, Fraser, that these are people who are very humble. Um, who are very focused on human beings. I use the phrase that I've been more focused on now of international relations, but I use the phrase of interhuman relations. And they are all individuals. All the interviews are people who are very good with human beings. They, they connect well, connected well with me, but I, I've seen it how they connect with others. So I learned that leadership is about the human connections. And I, the questions that I posed to each of them was whether or not they felt charity, the idea or the concept of charity, was relevant to effective leadership. That's not a question typically a senior policy leader is going to get. But in each case, they said, yes, uh, the charity and the concept of charity and kindness is relevant to effective leadership. So that's what I learned from the Clyde Built conversations, um, and I'll continue to do those uh, as a way to put a spotlight on effective leadership and, and personal examples for people to look at. Now, at the time you were developing Clyde Built, um, you also began lecturing in political science and international relations. So how did, how did that experience uh, of being the lecturer compare to being the student? Well, also humbling. I felt that I had a story to tell and where it went, Fraser, as I lectured, it became, again, back to this earlier conversation about international relations and the study of diplomacy, etc., versus practicing it or observing it or watching it, how it operates in Congress. That is what I gravitated more towards. As a teacher, I became, yes, a lecturer, but I also focus a lot on being a mentor. I wanted to help these students to understand the possibilities if they had any aspirations of being involved in politics or involved in foreign affairs, how to practically go, and go about doing that and how to use the study of international relations or political science or politics to engage the process, not to be passive observers, but to be directly engaged in it and committed to it. So I used the opportunity to, yes, lecture and talk about the particulars of different agencies and different committees in Congress, the United Nations, et cetera, different countries and comparative politics. Uh, but I also used it as an inspirational tool to inspire these students to go into these areas. And if they didn't go into it to prep professionally, to engage politically. And I, I still feel that so strongly that 
these wonderful people that are around the world who are studying these subjects. It's so important for them to stay engaged and use their understanding and insights to inspire others to stay engaged because so many young people are not participating directly in the political process and they should be. Um, so I, I, it was an interesting being a student to being a lecturer. I, I found what I gravitated to was trying to be a mentor and an encourager uh, for students to engage in the political process. The second half of my interview with Ian will continue in a few seconds. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E and comms with two M's. You then spent 11 years at the American Foreign Services Association. So this is quite a big chunk of your career. So tell us the story of what happened there. American Foreign Service Association is the uh, largest professional association of the United States Foreign Service, both active duty and retirees, uh, serving as executive director and the advocacy leader, uh, legislative parliamentary director, uh, was an honor. It, just representing the Foreign Service at the highest levels was a, uh, and the principles of diplomacy and why diplomacy is important was something that I continue to uh, feel grateful for that I had that opportunity. And it came about because I had, as I said, been in the international community had been doing humanitarian development activity, as we talked about, worked on Capitol Hill doing foreign affairs, and it just sort of naturally moved into that realm. But what I did at APSA was not only speak to the issues of diplomacy and advocate for the men and women of the United States Foreign Service and the diplomatic corps, but I also ran an organization and managed it. And really, I feel, was involved with a number of people who helped transform and modernize AFSA into the organization it is today, which is a solid organization doing uh, wonderful things. If people wish to go to the website AFSA.org, they can see what the organization is about. So serving as in that role as executive director, supporting an elected board of foreign service personnel, um, I worked with some great chairs or presidents, uh, former ambassadors, who to this day I remain in contact with. They're, they're just great individuals. And to my point earlier, just people who exemplify good leadership and kindness and creativity. So AFSA, it, uh, born in 1924, uh, the Foreign Service Journal is a part of AFSA. If people wish to work, look at the Foreign Service Journal, it's a great resource um, and uh, continues to, to this day. And it's been challenging, Fraser, for the Foreign Service uh, in, in these times. Uh, these are professionals who, like the military, uh, are principled and professional about their commitment to the Foreign Service. Uh, they're not political figures uh, in the traditional sense. They are professionals who are committed to their craft and their, uh, and their work. So it's been a challenging time for them, uh, but still some of the finest individuals you'll ever meet. And I say that also for the British diplomatic corps who I've connected with, uh, just some of the finest people, uh, and I'm sure you have connected with them as well, who represent the United Kingdom around the world. Um, the same goes for the United States. So, Ian, when you say it's a challenging time for them, are you talking in terms of current U.S. foreign policy? Yes. What's challenging for the Foreign Service is an individual who comes into the Foreign Service will immediately receive an assignment of where to go. That could be a domestic assignment. It could be in Washington, or it could be overseas working for an embassy, of course. Uh, the foreign policy at any given time is directly aligned with 
the administration that would be in charge at any given time. So as you all appreciate, there's been a real contrast between the foreign policy priorities of the Obama administration versus the Trump administration. And I leave it to your audience to make their own conclusions uh, about that direction. But it was a significant contrast, and it's challenging for the Foreign Service to operate in those situations. They're professional, they execute, and they do the, the best job they can. But sometimes uh, political leaders can question their professionalism, uh, and that came out um, recently and really challenged them for their motives. Their motives are to represent the United States. They're patriots. They have a desire to do what is best for the American people. And they're not political figures as such. And what has been challenging is that some have been called out for being political. And that's unfortunate because they are not that. And so, um, but the broader picture is that the direction of foreign affairs and foreign policy is just very different than what it was uh, previously. Uh, and that's the discretion of the president, what direction to go with foreign policy. Of course, that's what a democracy is about. But it can also be taxing for a career professional service, even though they have maintained great integrity and, um, and not been resistant, per se. They've been uh, engaged. And uh, these are Fraser, believe it or not, if you were to tell your audience how many Foreign Service personnel there are from the United States around the world, you would have a, a range of guesses of how many people uh, there, mm. there actually are. But the number is about 15,000. That's it. Right. That's the entire mm -hmm. force of the United States Foreign Service personnel, mm. 15 to uh, 16,000. And that's just not where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, it needs to be more than that, frankly. And if you put it alongside how many military personnel we have and we, uh, we honor the military, we're just not where we need to be in terms of a footprint for diplomacy around the world. And uh, we need, in my opinion, we need to train and grow the Foreign Service. So you've moved on from that, and, and I mean, I see from you, your profile, you're now managing director of Clyde Built International. So, was that were you always involved in that in the background, or did you sort of pass yeah. that on to somebody else? Yes, I was always involved with it in the background. Yes, okay. uh, I was very focused on APSA, and so it it, it was there, but. Uh, it was, Clydebilt gained additional um, energy when I made the decision to move on from APSA. Um, I just wanted to bring it back. And as we talked about, focus on issues of leadership and the Clydebilt conversations and engaging again on poverty issues and also universities and helping universities. So it was, it was in the background, uh, but less so with APSA frankly, but uh, it was still there. Um, but I gave it added life uh, when I uh, departed APSA. I see. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of alongside that, and it's something that will be of particular interest to, to many people listening to this, in May of this year, you were appointed as the Washington DC ambassador for the Scottish Business Network. So how did that come about? And what does that post involve? Well, the Scottish Business Network has been just such a joy. I have, first of all, in terms of how it came about, just a genuine interest in Scottish business and industry and promoting business and industry and entrepreneurship in Scotland, which is so ripe. And uh, I so appreciate the resiliency of, of businesses across sectors in Scotland and always had that admiration, particularly so, though, I've seen that and appreciated it in recent years. So that was always within me, even going back to our initial conversation about identity, it was so deeply entrenched in me. Um, and uh, so I, I just had an 
increased awareness of what was happening with Scottish trade as a trading nation, engagement with the U.S., U.S. companies that were engaging with Scotland, vice versa, Scottish companies engaging in the U.S. or aspired to. And then came in across uh, Russell Dalgleish, who, who we both know, and uh, Christine Essen and, and others within the network. And it came about by just saying, here I am, I'm ready to be a supporter. And so I was so honored and pleased to be appointed to this position as ambassador in Washington, alongside the other ambassadors we have here in uh, the U.S., currently in Atlanta and New York, great individuals, Sandy Donaldson and Fraser Greer. And um, so in terms of what I do, I say to your audience and say to you that I'm here to offer support. It's to help organizations at any level to engage with uh, the U.S. markets here specifically in Virginia and Maryland, uh, but Washington, D.C., and uh, to help navigate and, and make connections and network. Uh, Fraser, I, I'm also engaged in policy discussions and ensuring that the voice of Scotland and Scottish industry and entrepreneurship is included within the context of, for example, the trade negotiations that are going on between the United States and UK, ensuring that the that voice of Scotland is heard both in Congress and within the halls of power in Washington. And that's borrowing on my experience at APSA and before. And so it was a, it's just a real honor. I, I find great energy and excitement in my connections within the network. And uh, we call it the Scottish Business Network. But I also think of it as a community. It's a, a Scottish business community. And by that, it's uh, like-minded people who can come together and share stories. Uh, so it's just a real pleasure to play this role and continue to do so. And I look forward to supporting your listeners uh, or others uh, with their goals uh, for engagement with the U.S. Well, you know, there's a, a great resource there for, for any Business people looking to make progress in the U.S. Uh, we've talked a lot about business, um, international relations, politics, and so on. But it's uh, you have also have a very interesting hinterland, Ian. So we're going to move on to that now. And first of all, your your LinkedIn page I, I noticed stressed the importance of you to your family. So maybe you could tell us a, a bit about your family and also, you know, why is it so important? Do you do you see people perhaps? getting swept up in the demands of their career and, and overlooking the, the, the value of spending time at home? To your last point, absolutely, I see that. And I'm actually, Fraser, a little concerned with the shifting, whether it's temporary or not long-term, the shift of the pressure that's being placed on families and practicing business activity within the home. Uh, to me, the home, and I'm sure you and your listeners will appreciate this, is that home is a sanctuary. It's a refuge. It's a place that we can perhaps keep work at bay. We can keep the stresses of work away so that they don't infiltrate the the home or create stresses with the people that we're closest with. And so while I'm a great supporter of uh, work-from-home policies and work-life balance, I do have some concerns about how the shifting to the models that we're using are perhaps creating challenges within the home of people trying to balance family activities with work responsibilities within the home. Because I, I, I fundamentally, I believe that the, uh, the home is a, a, a refuge. I, I often use the phrase that, um, that, the value of a home is important, but the values that we teach within a home are much more important. And so I, I worry about the, uh, the the pressures that are being uh, placed on families and individuals. And I hope that resonates with some of your listeners. We just need to find a, a appropriate balance and not intrude on almost the sanctity of the experiences, the precious time that we have with family. My own family, thank you for asking. Um, my own family, 
um, is and continues to be a, a wonderful teacher uh, to me. I have uh, three grown children. Fraser, I, I'm always, I'm not sure what to call them. I, I, I say children, but they're grown adults. Um, and like I say, they're great teachers to me. Aiden Griffin and Grace are their names. Um, and uh, I tell you the last story with Grace, the last one. Her name is Grace. Uh, just quickly, why we chose to name her Grace. She was born just a couple of months after 9-11, after September 11. And at the time, many people were saying, not so much directly to us, what a horrible world this is. How can, you, how can anyone possibly bring in an individual to this horrible, conflicted world in which we live? And so my wife, who was close to giving birth to our, our daughter, uh, we thought about that. We chose to name her Grace in the context of 9-11 to remind us and others of the importance of actually unity and kindness and sort of what the, the word itself means. And so the family for me has been a great uh, teacher. Uh, no family is perfect, and certainly that has been the case uh, with my own. I, I know families come in all different shapes and sizes and, and uh, many single-parent households, um, gay couples raising children. Uh, you have all sorts of different uh, types of situations. But I think the key ingredient for me, Fraser, is that um, it's, it's been love and support for one another trust in one another, and even trust in something beyond ourselves. So, Fraser, I'd also like to add that my wife, Jo, who is a college teacher and an English writing instructor, literature teacher, she has really been a rock for me in my life. Uh, I've certainly given her many opportunities, ample opportunities to throw rocks as well, but she doesn't do that. Her personality has been very supportive and for decades she's been a real encourager has been with me through difficult times and challenging moments and just a friend in the truest sense of the word uh, she still laughs at my jokes which is uh, not an easy thing to do but i so appreciate her support now that's a, a lovely answer in um now i'm going to move on to uh what is a very emotional subject for for many Scottish people, which is sports. So, oh, you know, yes. I mean, if you're going to sort of embrace a nation, you've got to embrace the low points as well. So I know that you've uh, you followed in your father's footsteps by, by, by coaching, in your, your terms, coaching youth soccer. Yes. You have a role yes. as the U.S. ambassador to the Radisson Red Glasgow Rocks base, basketball team. Um, yes. But I'm interested to hear what your take on Scottish sport is. And, you know, for instance, I know you, you like football or, or soccer, as it's called mm -hmm. there. So, I mean, it's it's been a pretty dismal couple of uh, decades, really, being a Scotland supporter. So uh, yes. what does it feel like from over there? Well, as far as football and soccer, there's real quality of play. But, yes, it's been challenging for, I think it's 1998, 21 years ago or so um, since the Scottish national team qualified for the World Cup. But I will say this as a qualifier, that often what we talk about with the World Cup in Scotland, we put it through the lens of how the, the men have done. The men have quality players, they're a great squad. But we also need to remember the women. The women mm -hmm. national team has done very well and their performance uh, with the most recent Women's World Cup. Uh, Shelley Kerr, who's the women's national coach, is, wow, I, I think she's one of the finest leaders out there. Aside from football, I think she's just a great leader. So if she's listening... <laughs> she is a great Shelley. leader, but I, ha I have to say, Ian, uh, you're being very yeah. positive about this, but this was another case of Scotland <laughs> clutching defeat from the jaws of victory in the game against Argentina which um, yeah. you know, sends a shiver down the spine. But no, they did do really well to, to get there, and it was a shame that it ended in such a, a cruel fashion. What I particularly like about Shelley Kerr and 
uh, other uh, leaders within the sport of soccer and football is how they're engaging with youth. Uh, Shelly has done a, a fine job with engaging with girls in soccer and encouraging girls. Again, sport doesn't necessarily mean that the girl is going to become a great soccer player or make it on the women's Scottish national team or play professionally for women's soccer. It means that they should have the confidence to try to do something and be validated by players like Shelly Kerr and others to say, you can do that. You can play soccer and you will be as supported as much as the boys who are playing on the pitch across the street. And that's an important message, I think, that Shelly Kerr is doing, aside from, again, the performance of soccer, which, yes, that's that's a goal to ensure that Scotland is performing at the highest levels. But it's also about empowerment of youth to give them confidence, particularly the girls, that they can do something that some around them will say that they cannot. And uh, as far as sport generally, thank you for mentioning the Glasgow Rocks. Uh, if anyone has not been, your listeners, to a, a British basketball league a game, uh, whether it's women or men, please go. In Glasgow, the Glasgow Rocks uh, have had some real challenges with COVID-19. The end of the season was canceled. They were at the top of the tables. Um, and so they're a leading team within the British Basketball League. Uh, but Duncan Smiley, who's the owner of the Glasgow Rocks, find him on LinkedIn and you will be inspired. Now, uh, finally, Ian, you are also a poet and you published a collection yeah. this year called Under Candle Bright. Uh, and all, yes. all the proceeds are going to the Glasgow-based charity Mary's Meals. So mm -hmm. how did this love of poetry develop? My love of poetry started at a young age. Um, I used to scribble and scratch and try to rhyme and uh, uh, do the best I could. At a very young age, I was writing, and, and uh, but never actually pursued it in any professional way. And then, as we've discussed, I became very busy with my career in, in foreign affairs and government relations, etc. And so I didn't have a lot of room uh, to write. I did it a bit on the side. But the love of poetry, particularly as it relates to Scotland, I'm a, a great lover of Robert Burns. And now that sounds a bit of a cliche, because many will fit into that category. Uh, but for me, Burns is a person who wrote in a way that spoke to me, an individual who came from so little and was able to achieve so much through the written word, song, to really uh, capture the spirit of Scotland. And I so deeply admire his story. Uh, it's not only Burns, but he in particular was a, a real motivator for me um, to Fraser to really jump in and start to write and produce this book under candle bright. And so, yes, thank you for mentioning Mary's meals, by the way, Mary's meals is an organization that has a simple mission of providing one meal per day for a child in school in the developing world. That's it to help them to be nourished and more focused on being in school, to keep them in school so that they can move forward. They're literally now providing millions and millions of meals every year around the world. What my book does is, uh, the way that I've done it is that every book that goes out uh, or is sold, I, I give the proceeds to Mary's Meals. So one book feeds a child for about six months. Wow. And uh, so it's really quite incredible, their model of how they feed a child on so little and stretch the pounds or the dollars over a period of time. It would be lovely if we finished with 
you reading one of your poems. But also, just before we do that, um, if people want to get hold of the book, what's the easiest way to do that? If Thank you. If individuals wish to go to undercandlebright.com. Brilliant. That's nice and easy. So what, is, what, what are you going to read for us? Several of the poems are set in Scotland. And this particular poem, I was sitting in Dean's Village, if you know where that is yep. in Edinburgh. Yeah. So if your listeners, some do not know where it is. It's a lovely section. It's a bit of an oasis, Fraser, away from mm. the, the hustle and bustle of the city. And uh, so a lovely place called Dean's Village, uh, where I was just sitting and pondering the buildings that surrounded me, the old uh, buildings, which were mill houses uh, where industry was humming. And uh, I focused a bit on thinking about women who worked in those mills and the challenges that they had uh, while working there. So this particular poem is called Saint of Water Leaf. I stood up from the right bank bench, leaned over the edge alongside St. George's Well, a witness to the imagined regalia of your long white apron, serenely swaying with autumn leaves down water of leaf. You had toiled in once these surrounding groaning mills, before dawn, after dusk, as you labored, so too did your precious children and your demanding, howling husband. Scant wages for all, barely enough to stay afloat. Yet you still came back again and again. Strength of soul, bonny smile that warmed the gray, dashes of rose across your hardened, freckled cheeks. Ginger locks on your shoulders did rest. Here I am under the luxury of soothing repose. There goes your cloth gliding further down the river, across the polished rocks, towards St. Bernard's Well. Where is your monument? Very good. That was very, very evocative. I could just just picture it there. So thank you very much. That was a lovely way to finish. And great to hear your story, Ian. Thanks for appearing on the podcast. Thank you so much. And Fraser, thank you for all that you do. And I really appreciate you using your talent for good. And it's been a joy to speak with you today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 50. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.